in John chapter 8, 31 to 32, and then we're going to skip to John 14, 6. Uh, John 14, 6, probably in some ways better known. Let me, let me tell you something that's on my heart about, uh, and I want to give Trail Life USA, uh, one of the leaders in the program said that seven out of every 10 kids that when they leave to go to college will come back rejecting the Christian faith. Seven and 10. So one thing that's been on my heart is what is the Christian worldview? How are we to view the world in which we live? And uh, I'm going to do a series of six sermons. Today we're going to focus on truth. And some of this has already been written in the little PS note for me. But when we talk about worldviews, we need to know what we are up against as believers. And these are the prominent worldviews that are still current today. First one is pantheism. Truth is an experience of unity with the oneness of the universe. So in, in one sense, you could say the pantheists would say that God can be found in the trees. God can be found in the mountains. And while that's absolutely true, because God did create the trees, God did create the mountains, God did create the seas, God created all the mammals, the pantheist, pan meaning broad, that God is in everything. And that is true. But the problem with pantheism is that you don't connect with God through Christ. You connect with God through the natural world, which you can see. So that's why you have people worshiping trees. You have people worshiping all kinds of other things. That is a pantheistic view of the world. The second one is what I call naturalism. Naturalism, truth is understood by scientific proof. If it can't be proven scientifically, it doesn't exist or it's not real. So the naturalist would say, well, there is no evidence of the existence of God. But now if you go back and you ask the pantheist, oh yeah, there is this cosmic God that exists. So this, this one says, no, you can't explain God, therefore it can't be proven scientifically. You know, last, last night I was at the, uh, I, I joined the uh, Champaign-Urbana Astrological Society, and we had the kids, we all went out and we got the, uh, this one guy, Philip, had a telescope that I would very much like. But anyway, we could see the rings of Saturn. And what I thought about was God. God was the one that put all of those stars, and we saw this cluster. Uh, it was straight above us and had a bigger telescope, but straight above us. And there was this cloud with millions of stars inside of it. And what I say as a believer is, look at what God did. Look at how great God is. And the guy was explaining to Levi that uh, if you were to live up there, there would be so many more stars. If you just lived in that little cloud, 
there would be more stars there than we see here. It's just quite amazing. So the, the naturalist would say, no, if it can't be proven scientifically, then it doesn't exist. I, I want to meet one of them so I can talk with them about scientific proof. Humanist, truth may be found through science, not so much. Critical thinking and philosophy. One of the first things that came to my mind was Plato's analogy of the cave, where all we do is we see shadows. The real world is beyond us, in which you walk out the cave, and the sun, this is ironic, the sun illuminates everything that is real. That was Plato's attempt of trying to understand reality. But the humanist goes to more critical thinking and philosophy. To be or not to be. It's kind of crazy, but that's what they believe. A, the one we're in today, postmodernism, and this is very simplified, there's many strands here, but truth is relative to one's culture. What may be true for our culture may not be true for another culture. So, I think I have, yeah, one more. Polytheism, truth is found basically in the gods. So, all of these have one thing in common. They are trying to understand truth. These, this group can't even get along with themselves because they each have a different view of truth. What I'm going to talk about today, what I'm going to preach on today is about truth. So the question is, what is truth? Um, what is truth and how can we as believers share that truth with the world? First of all, I want to note this. This is John 8, 31 and 32. Jesus is the truth. Now we pick up the narrative. Basically in chapter 8, Jesus has been saying, I am the light of the world. In fact, we could go back and just read that. Again, Jesus, this is in 8.12. Again, Jesus spoke to them and said, I am the light of the world. Whoever, whoever will walk, uh, will, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So this idea that there is something parallel to truth, which is darkness. So when we think about truth, we think about truth being light, something that is visible, uh, something that will help us see the world in which we live. Those who do not have Christ walk in darkness. And of course, they come up with humanism, uh, secularism. They come up with all these isms to try to find the meaning of life. And they keep searching and searching and searching. So in this context of Jesus talking about, I am the light of the world, he says this. And this is after uh, many Jews believed. So Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. One of the first things connected to truth, Jesus being the truth, the first thing that is connected is discipleship, and Jesus talks about it right here. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciple. The word believe here is pistuo, that's the Greek word, pistuo, 
and it means complete trust or reliance on Christ. That's the starting point of not only salvation, but discipleship. So when we think about salvation, we should think simultaneously saved and follower of Christ from that point forward. Then Jesus says, if you believe in my word, logos, which is the word message. The word abide means, uh, is in, in the Greek is meno, and it means to remain or to be settled. One of the best uh, explanations of this is George Beasley. He wrote this, abide in my word, that is the mark of, real, of a real disciple. Abide signifies a settled determination to live in the word of Christ and by it and so entails a perpetual listening to, reflecting on it, holding fast to it, and carrying out its bidding. So Jesus told the new believers who had just trusted in him, this, of course, Jesus was talking, it would later be in our Bibles. Uh, Jesus said, the mark of a true disciple is that we are in the word, the message, the truth of God. And so this is something that we should be looking at daily, looking at maybe three or four times a day, reading what God says about himself, what God says about us, and what God says about the world. This is what it means to be children of light. Barna, George Barna, of course, they are the gold standard for Christian uh, statistics. And of course, statistics can be a little bit left and right. It, it depends. But the Barna Group is very targeted towards the things of God. And, 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 and I, was quite, I was quite amazed by what they found. I'm going to give you just a couple examples. Now, Jesus just got through saying, uh, if you are my disciple, you will abide in my word. If you're truly my disciple. This is what George Barna concluded last year in 2021. How often... Do you use your Bible on your own? Now, let's look at this. These are all broken down by colors, and they come all the way over here. Number one, seven days a week, only 11%. Only 11%. This is based on an extensive study. Four to six times a week, only 5%. Two to three times a week, 9%. Once a week, 9%. Once a month, 8%. Three or four times a year, 8%. Once or twice a year, 8%. Less than, less than once a year, 13%. And look at this. 29% never. Is it any wonder, is it any wonder that the church is in trouble? Because we're not in the Word of God. We are not looking into the Word of God and saying, God, how do I navigate life? How do I navigate this world in which I am seeing darkness all around me? If we are not in here, then we are not growing in our spiritual walk. We are not becoming more like Jesus. And therefore, when our kids see us living our lives, <laughs> they go, well, this, this isn't important. I don't see mom and dad ever in the Word of God, uh, and I'm a big sports fan too, but uh, hopefully when our girls were 
they knew. And thankfully, both of my girls are serving in the church of Christ. And I know that you can lay a good foundation and the child will do what it wants to do, but at least you lay the foundation. One of the things that's, at least I've had an urgency with Trail Life, is to make sure that we are projecting this world view, Christian worldview, so that when our kids, I think of our trailmen, and I think of our kids here, when they go away to college, they'll come back stronger in the faith, not weaker or not rejecting. And you know what? I've seen this a lot. And I've seen this a lot, where kids come back and they have nothing to do with God. Because I'm going to tell you something. The secular colleges and universities are preaching against the existence of God. And so they have to have that core foundation when they go to college, when they go out on their own, they have to have that core foundation. Which means as believers, parents and grandparents, we need to start taking this stuff seriously. There is another statistic by Barna, even more shocking than this. I don't know what the quick numbers are, uh, 12, uh, 52, 29, 39, 42, 42% less than once a year, never. That's almost half. I'm curious about this group. Very curious about that group. But anyway, is the Bible relevant? Is it relevant? Barna asked that. The Bible contains everything you need for life. 30% strongly agreed. That is shocking. That is shocking. 24% somewhat agree. 12% disagree somewhat. 13% strongly disagree. Thankfully, we're a little more on that side. But what that tells me is that they're adopting secular world views about how we raise our, our children. And it even says about why we're stumbling and struggling as believers to make our way in this world when we don't know, we, we, we're not in the Word, we're not studying, we're not growing. And Jesus said, if you abide in my word, if it becomes the source of your life, and the word also means Jesus, logos, if you abide in me, then you are truly my disciple. I think oftentimes, even myself as a Southern Baptist, sometimes we preach grace to the exclusion of obedience to Christ. In other words, and it happens every Sunday, and I've been guilty of it too, I'm, I'm, I'm slowly revising. You come down, trust Jesus, say the sinner's prayer, and then go about your life and live as you please. That's dangerous, because when they trust in Christ, the word disciple means not only to become a believer, but to become a follower of Jesus. The sinner's prayer never saved anyone. It is a means by which we point people to the cross. When the person is truly born again, they know it in their heart, 
and, and what they naturally long for, what they naturally crave for, is the Word of God. Jesus said, if you are my disciple, and you are in the Word, you are truly a disciple of mine. The word disciple means mathetos, which means a follower of Jesus. So Jesus there talked about the truth of discipleship, and now he gets to the freedom part. And you will know the truth. This is in verse 32 of John 8. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This word gano, which I don't know if you're familiar with Gnosticism. Gnosticism, uh, Gnosko, uh, uh, was, was something that was happening as the New Testament church began to grow later, and John writes about it. Uh, other writers in the Bible write about it. Uh, Gnosko is, is an experiential knowledge. So the Gnostics believed that if you had a special knowledge of God, you would rise above you would rise above the pollution of this earth and you could live on a plane outside of this earth. Just saying that you don't even need Jesus. All you need is the knowledge, a special knowledge of the creator God. Jesus uses the word here as understand. You will understand the aletheia, which is the truth. This word's interesting too. And the truth shall set you free. Aletheia, the word truth, has its roots in the historical truth and also eternal reality. Aletheia, historical truth and eternal reality. And when we think about Jesus being real, we can look back through the history books and know uh, even secular humanists acknowledge that there was a person named Jesus. If you go back and you look at uh, the place of the skulls or Golgotha, uh, there's a picture from 1901-1902 where there was a, a there was a, a, a caravan of, of archaeologists digging, and you can see the outline of the skull where Golgotha was, where Jesus was crucified. So when Jesus says, "And you shall know the truth." Ultimately, Jesus is pointing to himself. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. In other words, there will be this moment of illumination. And, well, let me, let me give you a couple before I get there. Um, know, the, know the truth. Truth is used a lot. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth... By the way, the truth is often connected with the gospel. I'm going somewhere with this. Um, James 1, 8, he chose, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth. That's logos aletheia. That means the message of truth, which is connected to the gospel. Then you have John 1, 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and aletheia came through Jesus Christ. This was part of trying to get the Jews to realize that Christ is now the truth. Because until you reach that truth, you can never be set free. You are still in darkness. John 17, 17, Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your logos is aletheia. Your message is truth. 
so I would propose that not only is the truth related to Jesus Christ, but it is also embodied in the message of the gospel, which is quite amazing. Because when Christians read this, they go, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. What does that mean? Truth means Jesus, the gospel. If I read it this way to you, tell me how it sounds. And you will experience and understand the gospel message, and the gospel and Christ will set you free. That is a wonderful way of reading this. And the truth shall set you free. Now, this is where truth comes in. It is the gospel message of Jesus Christ. It is his work in historical and eternal reality that will ultimately set us free. Watch this. Uh, and this word, uh, eleutherō, means to set free, means to cause someone to be released. The big question is, released from what? Well, over here, you're in bondage to sin and you're in darkness. When the truth invades your heart, you are then set free from the bondage and the blindness and you have come into the reality of the gospel and you have been set free from what once held you, what's, what bound you and kept you from coming to the light of the truth. And you will experience the gospel message of Christ. And the gospel message of Christ will set you free. Quite amazing. Romans 8, 1 and 2 says this, Therefore there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. Praise God, right? Praise God. We, there is no condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Why? Because once over here in bondage to sin and death and blindness, Christ comes in and the Logos transfers you into the kingdom of light where Jesus says in 8.12, there are those who still live in darkness, but I have come to bring light and I am the light of men. And the gospel will shed abroad in their hearts and they will know me. And so here, we are no longer under the law of sin and death. We have been freed from that. And in the eternal reality of it, when we die, we pass from this life into eternal life. Quite amazing. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciple. And you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you know the truth? I'm not talking about have you been baptized. I'm not even asking if you attend Sunday school. I'm not even asking if you're a member of this church. What I'm asking is, have you experienced the truth of the gospel? And if you have, 
then our first priority, our first priority as believers is to study the truth that set us free. You want to know how Jesus lived? It's here. This is how Jesus, this is how we know Jesus and how he lived. And yes, you, you get it through sermons, you get it through maybe your personal Bible studies, but ultimately you do not need a doctorate degree to read if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Anybody can understand that pretty clear. You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. I want to encourage you today to get back in the word of God so that you can see how Jesus lived and then take that and model it in the world. I wonder how much of the stuff we have going on in our culture today is because, and I'm not condemning or I'm just uh, making inference to. I wonder how much of what's happening in our culture today is because the church is failing to do what it needs to do in reference to the Logos. There was a day, and I know it seems like really wasn't that long ago when you talk about five, six hundred years, you're talking a long time, but within the last hundred years, the church used to be the center point of life. And the church had a much better prominence in the world than it does now. And so when Christians are confronted in the culture, what they do is they go, I don't have an answer. I don't know. By the way, our Sunday school is getting ready to start a series on a lot of this stuff but so what happens is they shrink away from the culture instead of engaging the culture and we get ourselves into trouble and then we wonder why our world is chaotic let me tell you this when the church is gone when Jesus comes and he pulls the church out you, you think it's crazy now wait till that day there will be no influence of the church in the world when the church is gone. Praise be to God, I don't know about you, but I'm ready. I'm ready for the church to be taken up. Jesus, and then we're going we're gonna to go over now to John 14, 6, a very famous passage of Scripture. Jesus is not only the truth, he is the only way to God. I will make no apologies for preaching he is the only way to God. Um, actually, one of my... I use this at funerals a lot. Um, and Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I see one person's word for word with me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That's when we die. That's when the shadow and st uh, sting of death is removed. That where I am, you may also be. And you know the way I am going. And Thomas said, Lord, you know, we often say, boy, the disciples were slow, right? Well, we, they were with them. They didn't know all the stuff that we know or supposedly know. 
Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And then we enter our text, and Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am. It actually is It's pronounced ego ami. I am. You know, certain times when, when I study, I get, sometimes I, I think it's because God wants me to dig a little, but I get stuck on something, and I go, I am, I am. I, ego, in Greek means I indeed am, ami, to possess certain characteristics that are in, in, inherent, inward. So Jesus says, I am the embodiment. But I started thinking about I am, which is used a lot. One time it's used, went all the way back. I don't know. Maybe I'd, maybe I'd do this. I get carried away with one, one or two words and, and follow it. I just love it. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. If Jesus is inerrant with the characteristics of God, of course he would identify with the Father and say, I am. I am the great I am. I am connected to God the Father who sent me to this earth, who caused me to be born of a virgin and live a sinless life and then took that sinless life, put it on the cross to pay for your sins and mine. So Jesus says, I am. To see me is to see the Father. Jesus says that. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And by the way, I love that uh, in my Father's house are many rooms. This is really speaking about Jesus' mission. I want you to think way, truth, and life. I want you to think about in, in reference to Jesus' mission. Don't worry, I'm going to conclude very shortly. I am, let's, let's examine this. Ego ami, I am in inherent characteristics, obviously, of God. I am the way, the truth, the life. I want you to focus on the word the. Jesus did not say, I am a way, a truth, or a life. He said definitively, I am the way, excluded, strictly. The truth, the life. Very clearly, Jesus left no room for discussion, no room for arguments for the believer. Now, I did some work on this way, truth, and life. And it, it, it's even found in the Old Testament in the Psalms. talks about, God, may I know your way, that I can walk in your truth, that you would uh, protect my life. So this was not uncommon or unknown to the Jewish mind. But Jesus transforms this and puts it into another context. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Hodos. Hodos. You know, the early church was called the way. In Acts, it was called the way. 
hodos is the word for road or way of travel. This picture caught my attention. And then I, I don't know, maybe I need ADHD meds or something. I, I started thinking, boy, that'd be a great place to put a tent. <laughs> but, so this is a way. There's no other road. There's no other road on either side of this. Jesus said, I am the way. There is only one road, only one road in which you can experience the truth and be set free. Now, what I find interesting in Jesus, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of ink, a lot of ink. A lot of the scholars that I read, they're like, they're all over the place. So when it comes to that point, I have to do it for myself. I have to put it in my own context where I can understand it and where I'm not preaching heresy. This word definitely means I am the path. I am the only road that you can travel. Now, secondly, is the truth. I want you to see how I'm doing this. When you follow the path, it leads you to truth where you are illumined. Again, the word... Aletheia. And this time, it, it's a reference to illumination. So when the person is, is following Christ, it gets to the point where they go, yes, this is the truth. The humanist, only proven by science. Pantheism, God is everywhere. He's in the tree. Worship the tree. Polytheism, the gods must have created the stars and the sun and the moon. That's our God. And Jesus says, when you know the truth, you will be illuminated. Your heart will be changed. The way you view the world will be changed. And then we have Zoe, which... When you know the way, you know the truth, and you will inherit eternal life. Very fascinating. Thomas Kempis wrote something that I thought was beautiful. Kind of summarizes what he's, this verse. D.A. Carson quoted him. Follow thou me. I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way which thou must follow, the truth which thou must believe, for the life for which thou must hope. I am the sacred way, the infallible truth, and the never-ending. Isn't that beautiful? It seems to me that this triad is connected in a way in which there is a progression. Now, from truth to life, obviously, we live. We live here and out there. I am the way, the truth and the life. 
And the life, I posted on Facebook a while back, (laughs) eternal life has already begun. Those who have trusted in Jesus, you're already in eternal life. You don't wait for it when you die. You already have eternal life in you. The Holy Spirit lives in your heart. So when you die, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, his spirit adopts our spirit. And the only thing that's left is the shell. So, we as believers, when somebody dies, yes, we mourn. Don't ever think I would never say you can't mourn. You do mourn the loss of a loved one. But we do not mourn like the world mourns. Because we know that we will see them again. And our hope is fixed fully on the cross of Christ and his redemptive power. And when he says, I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to be where I am. We have eternal life. We have life now, and we will have it then. We are no longer over here bound by sin and darkness, unable to see the light of the gospel. We have been been redeemed by the blood of Christ, and therefore we will have never-ending life. And I do know, I, I do know about grief. 33 years I've seen people grieve, and one of the worst things about being a pastor is to watch people grieve. I don't like it. And I know some people struggle more than others. That is the most hardest thing, I would say job, this is not a job, this is a calling. One of the hardest things about being a pastor and fulfilling that call is when people are hurting. I don't like it. I'm not going to lie to you in front of God. I do not like that part, and I've told God about it. So if you're grieving this morning, whatever, I, I want you to realize that is normal, that is okay. If it goes on for a long period of time, then maybe come talk to me. Yes, you're probably always going to miss whoever your loved ones was. I, you know, when I was a kid growing up, I didn't think about my grandparents all that much. They were just always there, but now they're gone. I'd like to go back and maybe do things a little differently. But of course, I was just a kid. The good news here is never-ending. Ephesians, he who began a good work in you will do it until completion of Christ when he comes. So you can, you can get... And then Jesus says something that is stark and it actually cut to the law of Moses, I believe, was this. It's exclusive. Jesus just got through saying, I, I am the great I am. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And oh yeah, by the way, nobody comes to Theos except through me. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. I get so tired when I preach. When I really get going, I get tired. Gerald Borchert. Now in this verse, John concludes with an emphatic assertion that no one comes to the Father except through me. Any hint, any hint of universalism, pantheistic patterns of salvation, or reaching the Father through any other means than Jesus here is completely eliminated. Do we believe that Jesus is the only way to God? That world out there needs to know it. That world out there needs to come in contact with the illumination. So I'm going to close by saying this. There is an ultimate truth. That truth is not based in culture. That truth doesn't change. It's not elusive. It's not defined by science. How do you explain the scientific nature of the Holy Spirit? Science is blinded to that because science is blind to God. The Holy Spirit's been stated as you look at the wind, you see the trees, the trees are blowing. Even though you can't see the wind, you can see the effects. Look at your lives. They're an effect of the Holy Spirit that has been in you, working and crafting you into the image of God. There is an ultimate truth. It's not scientific in that sense, but I can tell you what, if you can look at everything last night, just awesome. You can look at everything in creation and think that, oh, everything up there happened by chance. I don't have that much faith that something started with a molecule and exploded. I'll, I'll give this right. That God, if he did it, used a molecule and the whole thing exploded. That doesn't... Science... Thank God we have Christian scientists, and they are pushing back on the secular scientists. But brothers and sisters, when you look at the starfish... Did I ever tell you a story about Mr. Nagy? Oh, I said I wasn't gonna, I was gonna quit. Okay, give me, just give me two more minutes. Mr. Nagy, this was back when I was pastoring my first full-time church. Um, it was in Ohio. And, and I volunteered and, and worked as a student advocate. So I would take certain students and I would go to their classes with them to help them. And one day, Mr. Nagy was talking about the starfish. Mr. Nagy told me when I came in the room, because he knew I was a believer, he says, I want you to know that I'm an atheist. I said, that's fine. He said, you're okay with that? And I said, sure, I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm here for the child. Listen and see what you have to offer. And he started talking about the starfish, how the starfish goes down, it cleans the floor, other fish come along and they take some of what the starfish cleans 
And he gave a very fascinating, of course, kids weren't fascinated by it. They were, they were like this. But he gave about a 35-minute starfish and then said, okay, let's see what we learned. And, you know, they're like, but I was listening. At the end of class, I walked up to Mr. Nagy. If I've said this before, I'm sorry. I'm, my mind every once in a while just races. I walked up to Mr. Nagy and I said, Mr. Nagy, that was fascinating. He goes, really? I said, yes, it was very fascinating. I said, you know what, Mr. Nagy? It looked like that was designed. That atheist did this. I said, everything that you said looked like somebody was up there just designing this to fit here, this to fit here, and by his own science, I put it back on him and said, that's a lot of chances, right? And Mr. Nagy, got, he got that look on his face like, I never thought of it like that. I'm going to say this, pray for our Christian scientists because they're in a tough environment but they're out there. Praise God, they're out there confirming the existence of God. And let me say this. I'm going to close. Jesus is the truth. 